Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the sporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gadden College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this the very last day of July in 2019. And earlier today, or yesterday, if you look at the FDA release that actually came out today, darolutamide was approved by the FDA for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So that's what we're going to talk about today is this new drug. It's a bit of a Me2 or Me3 drug. So we're not going to get a whole lot into darolutamide, but compare it to the other uh, second-generation or enzyme-inducing antiandrogens, enzalutamide and apalutamide. Now, approval of darolutamide uh, is based off of the Aramis trial, which was published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it is specifically for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Let's talk about what that is. Uh, you might think that castrate-resistant prostate cancer means the disease is always metastatic, uh, and that's kind of what I thought, actually, even though I know I've seen patients who, who met this criteria that were not metastatic. But this is now a new disease that's kind of been coined, invented, uh, with apalutamide's approval uh, in February of 2008. So these patients have castrate-resistant prostate cancer, meaning their prostate cancer has progressed um, while on androgen deprivation therapy with a, a castrate level of testosterone less than 50 nanograms per mil. For example, the Arama study, uh, they also have a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months. So this could be somebody who had prostate cancer that was a high risk uh, for uh, metastasis, um, and they say they had a, a PSA that was undetectable. They had prostatectomy, and then suddenly the PSA starts going up. They can't find evidence of metastasis anywhere on imaging, and the PSA doubles within 10 months. That would be an example of non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, so we have... Um, several anti-androgens on the market. You have the older ones, the so-called first-generation flutamide, dilutamide, and bicalutamide, which is what most people used. And then the second generation uh, include enzalutamide, which is FDA-approved in 2012, apalutamide approved last year, 2018, and then darolutamide approved today uh, at the end of July in 2019. So they all have an approval for non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Enzalutamide's first approval was for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer all the way back in 2012. However, if you just look at uh, the non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer um, disease uh, grouping, they call this M NM, sorry, NMCRPC. Which is almost easier to say non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Anyway, uh, the primary endpoint in all these studies is um, metastasis-free survival time. So when you start the drug, or really when you're randomized, how long does it take until you either die or develop prostate cancer metastasis? So I'm going to read these across the board. You don't even have to know what drug it is, but it's 22 months, 24 months, 22 months. All these studies largely have the same inclusion-exclusion criteria because they all got FDA approvals in those studies. So from that, we can take away very you know similar uh, clinical efficacy if we do the kind of the hazardous thing and make cross-study comparisons. So let's look at some of the more uh, nuanced differences in how these drugs can be used. From a dosing standpoint, enzalutamide is 160 milligrams once a day. That's four uh, 40 milligram capsules, so a bit of a, a tablet burden or cap capsule burden there. Same thing with apalutamide. It's four 
uh, tablets in this case, uh, four 60 milligram tablets to get the 240 milligram dose. That's also taken once a day. So enzalutamide, aplutamide, both are taken once a day without regard for meals. This is different from darilutamide, which is a BID drug, 600 milligrams BID. So that's two 300 milligram tablets per dose twice a day. Uh, so each regimen requires the same, I guess, pill burden. So four tablets a day. Uh, so four tablets once a day, for example, with Enza and Aplutamide versus two tablets twice a day with Darilutamide. Another difference with Darilutamide, besides it being a BID drug, the drug does need to be taken with food. It's not very uh, soluble, has low bioavailability, so food increases the bioavailability by a 2 to 2.5 factor. Uh, what do you do? These are, you know, these are men with prostate cancer. These are older men. Older men don't have great kidneys. So what do you do if their creatinine clearance is less than 30? We don't know with enzalutamide. We don't know with aplutamide. For darilutamide, if the creatinine clearance is less than 15, we don't know. Or if they're on end-stage renal disease, we don't know on dialysis. But if it's 15 to 29, we do reduce the dose to 300 milligrams BID, which we also do with darilutamide for child pupae uh, liver disease. Uh, we don't know uh, as far as dose adjustments for apalutamide uh, or enzalutamide with liver dysfunction because it has not fully been studied. Uh, if we look at the toxicity, as enzalutamide was the first drug in this class, uh, when it first came out, I think there was like a, a one point, and this is, I'm really reaching the name, like a 1.8%, somewhere around the 2% uh, incidence of seizures in maybe one of the early phase two studies, which caused some concern. Now, in the subsequent larger phase three studies, they did see some seizures, but not anywhere up to that 2%. So the PI for enzalutamide says seizures 0.4% incidence, uh, although that is 2.2% in those who have a risk factor or risk factors for seizures. 0.2% uh, seizures with apalutamide, and then not, not even stated in the darilutamide package insert. Another thing that's come out recently is the risk of falls and fractures in these second generation antiandrogens. So the risk of falls is 10% with enzalutamide versus 16% with apalutamide. Um, the risk of fracture, so bone fractures, is 8% with enzalutamide uh, and 12% with apalutamide. Now, the PIs say for both enza and apalutamide that uh, DEXA scanning uh, was not done for these patients. They did not look at bone marrow density. They did not routinely put these patients on bone-modifying agents like uh, bisphosphonate or denosumab. Uh, so could those fractures be blunted, either one, by giving them bone-modifying agents, or two, um, you know, maybe them not falling in some way? And the reason I bring up not falling is uh, both enzalutamide and apalutamide are thought to have better uh, blood-brain barrier penetration. And then darilutamide, which is more hydrophilic, it looks like, uh, is less, uh, and certainly in, in rat and uh, mice models, does have a lower blood-brain barrier penetration uh, compared to, to enzalutamide. So maybe there is less CNS toxicity with darilutamide, which might lead to less falls. Less falls might lead to less traumatic fractures. So um, other than that, toxicity profile, pretty similar between uh, these drugs. Of course, you're gonna get the added uh, anti-androgen effects because all these drugs would be given along with an LHRH or GNRH analog. Uh, if we get real specific here, now this may not matter a whole lot because we already went over the clinical efficacy, which appears, I stress appears, uh, to be similar across three different studies. But if you look at affinity, um, so the KI for the androgen receptor is 86 nanomole, uh, 93 nanomole, and then 11 nanomole for darilutamide. So much, much lower, much more potent um, binding to the 
androgen receptor for darolidomide, and darolidomide actually has a keto metabolite as well that's very active that has an 8.4 nanomolar uh, affinity. Um, by the way, apalutamide also has an active metabolite that is equally active as apalutamide. Enzalutamide's got a metabolite uh, that's maybe 30% as active. Uh, if you look at the IC50, so how much does it take to block the antigen receptor signaling? 219, 200 with Enza and apalutamide. And again, lower number here is better. Uh, 26 nanomolar for darolumide. So it does appear to be more potent, but again, you know, not absorbed as well. Clinically, they appear to be the same. Um, historically, the reason that these second-generation antiandrogens are exciting is they work better. Why do they work better? Um, if you go into PubMed and you know limit your results to clinical trials and type in antiandrogen withdrawal, what you'll see is that in the past, uh, before we had abiraterone, before we had uh, cabazitaxel, before we had docetaxel, a thing that was done with men with castrate-resistant prostate cancer after a while and they were on a, you know, a combined androgen deprivation regimen of an LHRH um, agonist like Luprolide, as well as a first-generation anti-androgen like bicalutamide is after they're on both for a while, sometimes stopping the bicalutamide would lead to a response, which led to a lot of uh, research into the androgen receptor. And what happened is the androgen receptor can mutate to the point that it sees the anti-androgen as an androgen and then starts to learn to thrive in the presence of the anti-androgen and then when you remove that you can see some responses in a minority of patients. That's less likely to happen with second generation anti-androgens and if you look at some of these um, you know the the binding of, of these anti-androgens to the wild type androgen receptor you see that darolidomide is more a little more potent. If you look at some of the resistant strains that actually lead to these uh, these drugs becoming uh, agonist. It's got better activity, darolidomide does, in the BF877L point mutation, which is in the the, uh, the ligand binding domain for the androceptor where the androgens actually bind. A little bit better for the W742L mutation. So we're, what, we're, what we might see in the future is similar to what we see in CML, where one drug may work better based off of a, a specific mutation than a different drug. Now this is not the same as the androceptor variant 7, which has been linked to resistance. It's a different type of mutation uh, than this. Um, but I want to point that out that there are some differences, or there may be some differences in how well Enza versus APA versus Dero may work in certain mutations of these prostate cancer cells. But I really think the big difference right away in how these drugs are going to be used is going to be in, uh, incumbent on us as pharmacists to look at, and that's the drug interaction profile. Uh, I mentioned before that you could term or you could call, you could refer to enzalutamide and apalutamide as enzyme-inducing antiandrogens just as well as you could call them second-generation antiandrogens. And the reason for that is this is what happens uh, to midazolam in the presence of enzalutamide. Uh, decreases the area under the curve or total drug exposure by 90%. Apalutamide decreases it by 92%. Midazolam is a, our typical 3 or 4 probe. So these are potent. These are strong 3 or 4 inducers. They are just like rifampin. They are just like phenytone when it comes to potency of 3 or 4 induction. Um, so your one milligram dose of midazolam is really 0.1 milligram of midazolam. It's not going to do anything, all right? It almost completely uh, increases metabolism so much that there's nothing there. Um, now, midazolam may not be that big of an issue with a patient, but a torvastatin 80, 
being like eight or 10 milligrams, is that going to be good for a man who's had a heart attack and has <laughs> and has prostate cancer? What about if they're on rivaroxaban? How, how do you even measure their anticoagulation uh, in the clinic in that level, or the level of anticoagulation? You can't do that with a DOAC. What about ticagrelor? If they just had stents placed and they're on ticagrelor, which is a three or four substrate to prevent restenosis of their stent, all that ticagrelor is going to be metabolized a whole lot faster. They're at risk for rethrombosis. And how will you know it if you don't catch that drug interaction? Well, they'll have a rethrombosis and another coronary event. Now, darolutamide is a mild 3 or 4 inducer, decreases midazolam AUC by 29%, which qualifies as a mild inducer. So maybe darolutamide will have some uh, detrimental effect on very narrow 3 or 4 substrates, um, uh, maybe like a rivaroxaban, but certainly not as much as Enza or apalutamide. Uh, enzalutamide is also a moderate 2C9 inducer, so somebody on warfarin, you would expect their INR to go to go down while on warfarin. Uh, apalutamide is a weak 2C9 inducer, and again, a, a strong inducer means it's going to increase metabolism uh, by more than 80%. A moderate inducer is going to, uh, sorry, let me restate that. A strong inducer is going to uh, reliably reduce the AUC by more than 80%, so more than 80% decrease in drug exposure. A moderate inducer, 50 to 80% decrease, and then a week would be less than 50%. Probably 25 to 50%. Uh, as far as 2C9, uh, enzalutamide is a moderate inducer. Apalutamide is a strong 2C19 inducer, so that would have implications for, say, drugs like voriconazole. Uh, apalutamide is also a strong uh, uh, inducer of peak lycoprotein, which is going to decrease absorption of certain drugs. Um, it is also uh, an inducer of uh, OATP1B1, which is an organic acid transporter. The result of this with apalutamide is a decrease by 41% in the area under the curve of rosuvastatin. So your rosuvastatin 20 milligrams is more like rosuvastatin 11 or 12, which could increase someone's risk of a coronary event. Um, darolutamide inhibits the breast cancer resistant protein, which is similar to maybe to P-glycoprotein. It's a drug efflux pump. Um, so by inhibiting that, uh, it actually increases the AUC of rosuvastatin by fivefold. So with rosuvastatin, 10 milligrams of rosuvastatin with darolutamide is actually 50. And that will cause myopathy when we think of rosuvastatin as being the drug with the least amount of myopathy of our, of our statin, certainly of our high-intensity ones. But a big interaction there with, with really all three of these drugs are going to have interactions with statins. Uh, these are going to be used, Enza, Apa, darolutamide in patients, in men, that are old, that have prostate cancer, that are on androgen deprivation therapy, which is going to increase their cholesterol in the first place. It increases their risk of coronary events. Um, so it's a huge thing to pay attention to these patients. Same thing with antiplatelets, huge drug interaction potential. That's the take-home point when you look at these drugs. Um, you know, and, and the way that I, uh, when I talk to, to learners, I try and, you know, make sure students have a, a list they can recite of uh, of red flag drugs where you don't rely on the computer system to identify if somebody's on phenytoin, if someone's on rifampin, if someone's on enzalutamide, there's probably a drug interaction that you got to find uh, and, and, uh, and mitigate in some way. Uh, so just to, you know, to summarize, darolutamide has the cleanest drug-drug interaction profile. Uh, yet, you know, most likely the scenario where you would see rosuvastatin myopathy. So again, a lot of drug interactions uh, within this drug class. Um, and we will see going forward uh, if 
you know, if one of these perhaps has better activity against the androgen receptor variant 7, uh, which is uh, becoming a big area of research in, uh, in this castrate-resistant prostate cancer realm. Thank you for listening to Oncofarm. I uh, really appreciate all the comments and feedback on the podcast. Uh, you can follow us uh, on uh, Twitter at OncofarmPod and on Instagram at OncofarmPod. Follow me personally on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. Uh, you can listen to us and rate review us in the iTunes store. Give us a nice five-star rating and review. Tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more of on the podcast. And we're available all those other places for the most part that you've been listening to podcasts. Uh, thank you again for listening. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses and drug interactions matter. Thank you.